0: This is an Irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to this special episode of Powers and Principalities. As you may have noticed, you're actually hearing the intro music for Exvangelical, Because this episode is also being released in that feed as well. This episode is being published on January 6th, 2022, the one year anniversary of the failed coup attempt where President Trump's supporters, brandishing real weapons alongside the symbolic weaponry of Christian nationalism draped in the cultural trappings of white evangelicalism, sought to overthrow the results of a secure and fair election. To mark this occasion, I had a conversation with my friend and frequent guest, Chrissy Stroop. We talk about the long lead-up to Trump, to the Trump administration, as well as the insurrection. We also talk about what has happened since, the prescience of fellow irreverent media podcaster Bradley Onishi's New York Times op-ed piece in January 2021 about how the failed coup attempt would become Trump's own version of the lost cause and also how we can continue to have better conversations about Christianity's influence and impact on our media and politics. This interview was recorded on Zoom on January 5th, 2022, and is essentially live to tape. I hope you all are out there doing everything you can to take care of yourselves and those in your orbit as Omicron circulates. Exvangelical and Powers and Principalities are productions of the Post-Evangelical Post. You can support my work directly at PostEvangelicalPost.com at either 4 6 or $8 a month levels. 25% of funds are donated each month to organizations that help populations harmed by white evangelicalism. You can learn more at PostEvangelicalPost.com. And if you're an independent podcaster or content creator out there listening to this and you're struggling with the ethics of asking for funding like I just did, just remember that the seditious trader, Josh Holly sent a fundraising email during the Capitol riot. And then maybe take it easy on yourself, because if you can do something like that, you can add a little tag asking for people to support you directly. All right, everybody, let's get into it. Hello and welcome to this special episode of Powers and Principalities, noting the inauspicious a- anniversary of January 6th. I have with me is my guest, Chrissy Stroop, who is a friend of mine and a frequent guest on the show. Chrissy is a senior correspondent for Religion Dispatches and columnist for Open Democracy. Chrissy, welcome back to the show. Hi, Blake. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back. Uh, and uh, um, we, we, t- we talked a little bit um, about our respective holidays and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and here we are at the beginning of a new year and <laughs> just getting settled and just like last year um even just the sort of anniversary of what happened (laughs) um on january 6th was already sort of sort of starting to loom over this year as well
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah uh i mean last year definitely a lot of things were brewing they had that uh well that was technically wasn't last year it was technically late 2020 right december 2020 was the jericho march emceed by good old eric metaxas Mm, that's right uh, who, you know, made jokes about violence against the press. I think it was Um, Mm -hmm.
0: nice guy. Yeah. 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 Very, and very um, class act, very much a class act. Uh, Also known for punching a stand uh, bystander.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) After the Republican
0: National Convention. And running away. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Noted brave person, Eric Metaxas. (laughs) He bravely ran away. <laughs> well, he did actually punch the protester first. I guess that's more than Sir Robin ever did. <laughs> if you get the Monty Python reference, then good. Um, <laughs> well, actually, I one of the things when I was thinking about talking to you today uh, and really trying to frame um, what's happened uh, since January 6th, that it, it actually made me think about how we actually spoke for the first time on. On uh, ex evangelical, um, the day before the 2016 election. And just thinking about how much the country has changed since then. Uh, and in most ways, not for the better. Uh, obviously, in the last two years of dealing with a pandemic, um, but even that, the sort of steady erosion of a lot of the safeguards and norms of democracy um, mm-hmm. let, let's even before we get to the insurrection, uh, what are your thoughts on, and what are some of the things that, from the Trump era that really stand out to you as enabling mm-hmm. the insurrection itself to happen and what mm-hmm. um, what the sort of damages that are still um, still present in the democratic institutions here in America are?
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, you talked about the erosion of democracy, uh, which I guess there is a process that could be referred to as, as erosion. But also, I think a lot of it is more like demolition or taking a battering ram to it, you know, trying to get these institutions to break. Mm-hmm. Certainly, that's something that Trump uh, did constantly throughout uh, his presidency. And it's something that Um, You know, white evangelicals and Trump supporters in general have become increasingly comfortable comfortable with doing openly. Mm -hmm. Um, So these norms aren't just, you know, praying by themselves due to lack of use, but they're being deliberately pushed against. um, And the institutions are are, are being uh, tested. And um, so, yeah, and this didn't start with Trump and it doesn't end with Trump um we're in right. a reactionary moment that Trump was able to embody and and ride sort of weirdly enough um in 2016 2015 to 2016 but it's not even just a, a U.S. thing I mean globally we're in this moment of sort of surging right-wing populism mm-hmm. we've been in it since about 2011 or so you know I'm thinking of um Pussy Riot and and Putin starting to crack down, really ramping that up in in 2012 in Russia, Uh, thinking about how the Christian right in America and the the far right in Europe have embraced Putin's um, Christian leadership uh, as they see it. And because I'm me, I'm gonna say correctly, of course, he is a Christian and he is leading in an authoritarian Christian way, right? And and the the Orthodox Church has become increasingly close to him. Uh, Over this period, we've seen Franklin Graham in 2015, for example, meet with the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill, and get himself declared by Patriarch Kirill. Despite being a Protestant and therefore a heretic, um, supposedly, you know, Patriarch Kirill declares Graham to be a confessor of the faith because they're both anti-gay Christians together, so isn't that great? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I wrote an, uh, an essay about not just about that, but also about Pat Buchanan's embrace of uh, Russian neoconservatism and Russian Christian nationalism, uh, which has this sort of weirdly international flair to it, right? Because it's all about supposedly national sovereignty against these supposedly colonizing Western values. Um, Mm -hmm. But this anti-globalist movement is also globalist or global anyway um so yeah it's been happening worldwide it's been it's been happening at home um the christian right as we know it today as i don't have to tell you uh really kind of crystallized with the election of ronald reagan in 1980 obviously institutions were being built in the 70s and 60s christian schools the heritage foundation um right that sort of stuff yeah um, on that note the notably, majority
0: mm-hmm. and notably the but, the uh the year of the evangelical was nineteen seventy six. You know, according to news. Uh,
1: right, right, and then you know, four years later, um, they elect a president who isn't one of them, uh, but you know, endorses them sort of, literally, if kind of half tongue in cheek, right? The whole right, you know, you can't endorse me, but I endorse you. Yep. Um, Reagan was actually very charming. Uh, it's quite quite insidious that he, he was so charming and so able to disarm his political opponents with humor because really he's, he's pretty much as extreme of a nationalist as Trump. And um, I mean Trump even rehashed a bunch a bunch of Reaganite stuff, but you know, like the slogan' great again. make America great again. <laughs> yeah <laughs> So we were, we were on this trajectory. at least the Christian right was on this trajectory maybe since the 1970s and, well, definitely since the 1970s, and Trump was, I think, a logical culmination of it. They wanted to have as much power as possible. They ramped it up, they ramped up the pressure in the organization more in recent years, particularly since 2015, with the Obergefell decision of the Supreme Court legalizing same-sex marriage, when they felt like they were losing power. And then a couple years later, you know, into the Trump presidency, we see Southern Baptists Uh, you know, numbers, actually raw members, church membership numbers falling for the first time. Um, And we start to then see white evangelicals declining precipitously as a percentage of the American population, uh, partly due to immigration and other factors. Um, There's not, you know, as many people leaving as maybe I would like to see, but still they're a very small percentage of the population now, which does also mean there's more evangelicals of color, which is a complicated thing uh they sometimes vote the same way but, but not always you know mm-hmm. um but white conservative christians they feel like they're losing quote unquote their america the quote real america you know and uh and so in our country that's what's driving this um this fierce right-wing backlash against uh human rights and civil rights gains and um Against social justice and a more uh, for, for an inclusion of more of the population.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, and and to your to your point, like this is not the the as as a lot of folks have been saying over the last several years, the Trump administration was not an aberration, uh, but rather the culmination of a lot of work on the part of these far right individuals um, over the work of decades. Um, including those that are that are Christian, that are evangelical, and um, I'm curious when, when we look at the events of uh, of January sixth, and we look at the footage, and we we look at what was done. What are some of the striking examples of uh, of what is now generally called Christian nationalism? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an apt term, um, and I, and, but I do think also that the way in which we talk about these things uh, is, is important, and also noting that essentially Christian nationalism is, it can be identified as separate um, or maybe as distinct within white evangelicalism, but white evangelicalism is a particular very strong carrier of that particular virus yes if you will Um, but what's interesting i mean with
1: white evangelicals is that um you know the more often they go to church the more likely they are to support donald trump right and i think when we talk about christian nationalism and how some people are christian nationalists without being regular churchgoers we lose Mm -hmm. sight of that so that's important because church doesn't doesn't you know, automatically church attendance doesn't translate into good character, right? Or, well, it depends on your definition of good character, because right. obviously they think tearing down the American institutions so that they can be in charge is the good thing to do. Um, but anyway, so to kind of get at your question, I want to bring up the Jericho March again. And, mm-hmm. you know, the shofars and the, the singing and this invocation of a trope from what Christians call the Old Testament and and using that in in a very Christian way, right? Jews uh, relate to the Tanakh uh, very differently than Christians do, Mm -hmm. but we often see uh, Christians who have a sort of what I call politics of providentialism. That is, you you look for uh, signs or you look for callings from God and you look to world uh, events, current events, history, for, you know, evidence of what God wants you to do. And then you invoke all of these biblical tropes and probably everyone who's listening to this podcast has heard, you know, of Trump being the new um, King Cyrus, supposedly, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's one trope that was used a lot, right? The Persian king that allowed the exiled uh, Jews to return to their homeland um, and so protected them. Trump was represented as that by certain strands of prophetic evangelical Christianity and, you know, in, in particularly in charismatic traditions uh, as this kind of protector figure, uh, divinely appointed, divinely ordained. And so they, they invoke these stories from the Hebrew scriptures. And when you're invoking Jericho, you're invoking divinely ordained conquest, right? And you march symbolically around the Capitol seven times and you blow shofars and that sort of thing. And what they were doing with that was essentially claiming that um, God was going to conquer that territory for them uh, because they were in, they were in the, they were in the right. They're God's people in a way that Antifa and liberals and MSNBC watchers are are not, uh, or CNN watchers, you know, mm-hmm.
0: um, or Fox watchers. <laughs> <if> you, <laughs> according you know. to those
1: who only watch like CNN, yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Right, so uh, so you have all this charismatic um, Christian stuff, and I don't mean that in the like gen- in the sense that I would say like Ronald Reagan was a charismatic figure. I mean, you know, the prophecies, the the tongues, the uh, prayer walks, the weird prayers, the, all of that sort of stuff. And we see a lot of that again on one six. We see shofar blowers. Um, we we see people uh, singing hymns and claiming divine power to overturn the election. I mean, Paula White did that, uh, you know, right at the, at the very top, obviously insulated from everything. Um, Mm -hmm. but people were doing that just, you know, there in the mall or the area around the Capitol, um, around the, uh, you know, the Senate that they were, some of them were storming all this Christian stuff was going on. Uh,
0: Christian flags were carried, um, did you grow up saying the pledge to the Christian flag? I did not. I was a. I did end up. I I was a public school kid, uh, so mm. I did not do the that. But I definitely know people in my immediate circle mm-hmm. um, that went to Christian schools and 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 pledged to the Christian flag. I did just this fall see a Christian flag being flown from the back of a pickup truck here in the Chicago suburbs, <laughs> which was a first. I had never seen wow. that. Um was, that it with was, a, fall.
1: was it accompanied by a Trump flag or a thin blue line flag and or an Not, American flag or
0: actually this one was a solo flag. I didn't really inspect to see if there were any other bumper stickers or anything like that. Um interesting. But but yeah, it was it was striking because it mm-hmm. it's cause it is it is a loaded symbol especially in this day and age when it's a signifier that you essentially are a christian nationalist um i don't think it started with that that intent but that is in the in the context of uh 2020 to 2022 Mm -hmm. united states that was
1: actually adopted by the more um ecumenical protestants in the 1940s the group that became the national council of churches you know Mm -hmm. um the the group that is like too liberal and too nice for like the national association of evangelicals. Right. Um, and, and there's two versions of the pledge, like the more mainline version ends with some nice stuff about brotherhood, but the version that, uh, you know, is widely said in American Christian schools, each day after you pledge the American flag ends with one savior crucified, risen and coming again with life and Liberty for all who believe, all Mm. who believe, not all, just all who believe. That's an important qualifier. No brotherhood. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Only if you believe. So, uh, so yeah, there were Christian flags. There was one iconic um, picture from January six. I think there were three flags on the flagpole. I'm trying to remember, but I think one was you know the police like thin blue line flag, and the, then the one at the top of the flagpole, if I remember correctly, was a God Country Notre Dame flag. So, um, Indiana represent, I, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Uh and maybe it was the other one was an American flag, maybe, but, uh, I'll have to look that up because now I want to, yeah. Anyway, there were, you know, there were these things that the proud boys got together beforehand and and filmed. And so we all saw it, you know, this very evangelical prayer, like they, they prayed in a way that would be 100% recognizable to Mm -hmm. anyone who grew up in evangelical subculture before they stormed the Capitol.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: We saw we saw the we saw the um the QAnon shaman's prayer in the Senate well, which was a little out there, but still, you know, more evangelical than not, I guess. Uh, though obviously all the evangelicals I know would look askance at, at somebody calling themselves a shaman.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But nonetheless, as you as you've catalogued, there were a lot of examples of evangelicalism and christian nationalism on display and that and i think that is one of the things that that becomes difficult uh when you're when you're trying to discuss these things to a broad audience um which is that you it, it's it's hard to be able to distinguish and say yes we need to talk about christian nationalism but we need to also talk about it within the context of white evangelicalism and these fundamentalist uh, you know very conservative communities that have particular beliefs and practices and rituals and political actions that mm-hmm. contribute to this type of this type of uh, willingness to show up and try to overthrow the government.
1: Yeah. Oh, and by the way, if I just if I googled that picture because it was bothering me. I found it. So there's three flags on one flagpole. It's actually the lowest one that's God, Country, Notre Dame. Then there's a police flag. Then there's the American flag at the top of the flagpole. So mm. just. That's the one that I was thinking of but couldn't quite remember (laughs) what the third flag was or the order of the flags.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe as the year goes on, the order changes. Like if the say, <laughs> you know, once you get close to the the college football uh, right, the bowl game championship series, God, country Notre Dame goes at the top. <laughs> yeah. To the top. <laughs> yeah, I mean Notre Dame fans, they
1: they do take their college football seriously. Uh, but yeah. you know, no, it's interesting that we see Notre Dame there. I mean, where did Amy Coney Barrett come from? South Bend, Notre Dame's law school. Now I just was recently at a conference at Notre Dame. There's a lot of great people at Notre Dame. They're far and away not all Amy Coney Barrett. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty right. nice, it's a pretty nice place. Um, but it's very interesting to you know she gets shoved onto the Supreme Court, um, and you know then we see. Notre Dame specifically represented
0: at the one uh, six insurrection. Just an interesting yeah, connection. It is. It is very, <laughs> <laughs> very interesting. Uh, yeah, I want to also talk about um, uh, a piece from our from our friend Bradley O'Nishi that was published in in the New York Times just a couple weeks after the insurrection, um, and that title the title of that uh, op ed was called Trump's new civil religion. And in that piece, um, he essentially argues what I believe has come to pass, which is that that this event, the insurrection, is has taken essentially uh, a mythic type of quality that's not not based in the reality of the events that that happened on January sixth, twenty
1: twenty one, mm-hmm. uh,
0: and essentially have become this. A form of like the lost cause, and that was developed in the South following the South's loss in the Civil War. Just to quote briefly from it, then we can then we can talk about it. Um, he has uh, Onishi writes: a myth becomes reality through which through ritual when its story is dramatized and its adhered, and its adherence brought to collective participation in it. When Trump supporters took hold of the Capitol, temporarily halting the counting of the electoral college votes. They brought the fiction down upon the levers of government through temporary mob rule. Um, I'm just curious what what your thoughts are on looking back at the remainder of 2021 and seeing the ways in which even very, very mainstream, very popular um, conservative talking heads like Tucker Carlson have, um, have bought into this or mm-hmm. to the degree that they are willing to uh, actively develop this type of mythology as a way to undermine future elections
1: Mm -hmm. uh yeah i would say they absolutely have and it's interesting too again that uh certain figures including tucker carlson and um you know rod dreyer the um obnoxious raving um convert to eastern orthodox christianity have gone to hungary Uh, to show their support for Viktor Orban, who is, you know, an anti-democratic, essentially would be dictator uh, there. um, He's president of the country of Hungary, and he has been taking it in a very anti-democratic direction. He's another example Mm. of this global surge of right-wing populism. And, you know, Roddy Boy and and Tucker showed up to say, this is what America should be like, authoritarian Hungary. Um, So... But yeah, I think Onishi is is really spot on when he talks about the construction of um, myths, how they're divorced from reality. And and the staying power has been really something. I mean, we've had um, a year of voter suppression laws passed at the state level and complete impotence of the Biden administration and and Congress to do anything about that federally to protect, to pass federal voter protections. Mm-hmm. But you know they they've continued to claim the election is is stolen. Uh, they're not really they're they're not really backing away from that, um, and and we see it reflected in some other things that um, characterize tr- the Trump supporting demographics. Uh, so you think about all of white evangelicals, and you know they are the uh, one religious demographic with the highest rate of vaccine refusal. is till I think about a quarter. So, um, and we just learned that those who go to church more often for those that go to church more often, that goes up to, I think it was about 30% or maybe a little more. So mm-hmm. with evangelicals, church attendance correlates with Trump support correlates with uh, vaccine refusal. Um, and, and Brad in his article, you know, brought in uh, QAnon, talking about an eschatology based on conspiracy the eschatology of magaism which obviously mm-hmm. um, many white evangelicals have found somehow perfectly compatible with their style of thinking and with their own you know end times views uh, that may be distinct and separate from that but this there is this idea that that Trump is going to return and set things straight right like a return of the king sort of thing or you know, like a microcosm of Jesus coming back, <laughs>
0: right? Yeah, yeah, and that, I mean that is uh, it, it is even even now it's it's sort of hard for me to to put into words how how frustrating that is um, be, because we do see we and it makes me think of it makes me think of the the different media sort of environments that that we all exist in. Uh, simultaneously, uh, because this sort of narrative can use the same imagery, uh, but in radically different ways than what is presented on MSNBC or elsewhere, um, because the this imagery does fit into that very, very deep-seated religious impulse, especially within uh, within groups like evangelicals. Uh, mm-hmm. To see persecution everywhere, even sure. though they are the ones that are, and they literally storm the capital in order to try to overthrow a peaceful transition of power. Like, yeah, like
1: you, like Trump, they're they're bullies who who see themselves uh, as the victims, thus justifying their their bullying. And there's no basis in reality for that self representation. And I think that's one reason that we see just so many. Um, you know, sort of disturbing uh, psychological symptoms uh, among them, because this is not, I mean, this kind of repression is not a healthy thing, right, this kind of cognitive dissonance. Um, So it just kind of explodes in just complete weird, divorced from reality sort of stuff. And that's nothing new Mm -hmm. in evangelicalism. I mean, and maybe you can speak to this too, but you know, one of my uh, family's like longtime family friends, Going back to my parents' time in college, um, he is, you know, very much an evangelical Christian, um, and also he's always like believed in alien conspiracy theories and the Illuminati. Like those mm-hmm. things can those things all coexist perfectly naturally for him. And I mean, what they all do, I think, is is help to represent him in his mind as. First of all, you know, someone who has some kind of secret knowledge that you're supposed to not supposed to have, which is always like seductive, but also they give your life sort of structure and and meaning. And if you're frustrated in life, you have something to blame, you know. And QAnon is sort of the same thing. And as many others like Megan Goodwin have pointed out, um, it's also just Satanic Panic 2.0. I mean, these tropes about adrenochrome, uh, you know, about uh, what liberals are supposedly doing to babies um, but they're just you know 1980s satanic panic kind of stuff a little bit repackaged
0: yeah yeah I, I mean and that to me is sort of whenever you do study these these things or whether it's personally or academically you you recognize that that much of what white evangelicalism panics over is, this isn't the first time, like this has happened right. demonstrably multiple times in history, as you said. And,
1: and why do they panic over things that aren't real? Because that keeps them from focusing on uh, the very real problems in their own communities. So child abuse is real. And you take the satanic panic, right? And you're precisely in a time when child abuse was being widely talked about for mm-hmm. roughly the first time. I mean, it was something that doctors began to notice and be shocked by in the 1940s, and the 1940s and 1950s, you know, talk about these horrific X-rays that, you know, clearly these these wounds had to be inflicted by someone. You know, these 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 kinds of these kinds of things that they were looking at didn't just happen, right? They were clearly seeing evidence of violence against these children, evidence of child abuse. This was something that was not talked about. They start talking about it there's a little bit of efforts to address it in the 1960s and then more in the 1970s and um you know then you have this huge moral panic that uh posits a huge conspiracy and misdirects your energies toward targets and scapegoats who are not at the root of the problem so you don't have to deal with the problem in your own community i mean as mm-hmm. we as now is very well established uh most incidences of child sex abuse Uh, violence against children they're carried out by people who are in the family or close to the family right so focus on Mm -hmm. the family well uh, there you go um and we've also been seeing in recent years just how much abuse has been tolerated and covered up in white evangelical churches and uh and and so forth and honestly i think it's related to to the um sort of white woman's bargain of the old south where you know uh men had their dalliances which actually is a a euphemism for more than just you know affairs but they raped their female slaves you know and and the women sort of looked the other way um i mean their their wives right their white wives sort of just looked the other way um there's lots of generational trauma here in, in various ways and when I think about what fundamentalism is defined psychologically, and there's many ways we could define it historically, um, anthropologically, but you know, to me, what fundamentalism is psychologically is a misdirected response to trauma perpetuated communally and generationally. And when I say when I when I tried to say that you know, um, these these unhealthy sorts of repression lead to these kinds of like pathological symptoms. This is what I mean. You know the satanic panic. I think comes from a very profound state of just unease of not being well. Um, you want to deal with problems, but you can't deal with the actual problem. It's too much of an ego threat. So you deal with the conspiracy
0: instead. Right, which I I, I do and I, I do understand sort of the the impulse there. Uh, I I certainly as just as a person can. Um, sometimes I can approach a complex problem through abstraction or through a story. um, But it's something that it's not necessarily, it's not attributing blame and then, and then building an entire theology on top of it. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but I do, but I, but at the same time, even, even something being understandable does not excuse it. Uh, And so, and so understanding that how a mechanism of reaction works is different than than justifying it um absolutely it's not justifiable whatsoever
1: right yeah. uh, you know i mean i mean what what these communities what people in these communities need to do is to be willing to look inward and be self-reflective but mm-hmm. the entire theological approach of evangelicalism is designed to make that basically impossible
0: right and uh, that's an that that is a very interesting interesting point um as far as how whenever you take something that is essentially an internal issue like as you said um and a misdirected response to trauma um, and then externalize it through um uh, through attributing it to supernatural action on the part of demons or something else um then you're not at least within the context that i know uh, white evangelicalism that can often mean that it justifies your own uh, your own bad actions, or mm-hmm. or it um, redirects your attention to somewhere else that doesn't uh, allow you to address the problem um, in mm-hmm. in a more meaningful way.
1: Yeah, and evangelicalism is constantly giving people enemies and and causes and things to. To direct their focus and their energies toward so they they don't direct it inward. And is also constantly telling people, you can't trust your feelings. You can't trust your doubts. The heart is deceitful above all things. Lean not on your own understanding. Mm-hmm. I mean, and those last Doubt. two are quotes from the Bible. They're particularly popular among evangelicals and interpreted in this way, right? Doubt They're essentially taught to, to
0: self-gaslight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and if it happens early enough, then you actually have a hard time developing your own sense of self, your own mm-hmm. sense of understanding of your own wants and needs. And that's why it's laughable that some many evangelicals uh, over the past year have been trying to use phrases like doubt your doubts uh, before you deconstruct to try to undermine some of the popular conversations Um that are happening online around deconstruction.
1: <laughs> I am, of course, thinking yeah. of our old friend Tim Keller, uh, slash Darth Vader, um, <laughs> tweeting. You know, it's Satan who whispers, "Trust yourself," right? God whispers, "Trust me,"
0: or something like that, right? Yeah, I'm sure that he's doesn't. A, I mean, that's sure. He's, he's a quirky one.
1: <laughs> he's he's not John Piper, but he's a quirky one.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, and you know, this is a very. Uh, this is what we've been talking about for the last five or 10 minutes is, you know, definitely a very sort of fraud thing uh, and can all be summed up in in a single conversation. So just to sort of disclaim anything from <laughs> from that, as far as in the last five or 10 minutes, like we've, we've been talking a lot about some very serious things. So, uh, and I appreciate um, just being able to even talk about it sort of extemporaneously like this. Um, I want to return back to some of the other things instead of some of the broad parts of, um, you know, some of these broad aspects of fundamentalism um, that we talked about when we from since we started talking about satanic panic and that being sort of a a historical antecedent to this um, around that same time, you know, in the, in the eighties and everything else uh, is really, I think when all of these, these, financial and cultural investments that that really white evangelicals had been pouring in to their own communities since the 1880s really started to pay off um mm-hmm. you know within within politically um mm-hmm. and ever since that period essentially for our uh, as being you know oregon trail generation people <laughs> <laughs> um or gen Xenials or whatever the hell you want to call us
1: yeah. I'm actually um, recording this in Oregon and I have not died of snake bite.
0: <laughs> yes. Did you know anybody that died of dysentery on your way though?
1: <laughs> um, Oh, I'll, ha- I'll have to do contact tracing. To <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's a very, very particular joke. You, you would sure. I don't need to explain it anyways. Um, since that really, since the, um, since the 80s was when things really started to pay off politically and you know our entire lives have really been uh dictated by and large by the political desires of evangelicals they've been very successful and, yeah. and even if it's not white evangelicals sure conservatives who evangelicals align with and work alongside we mm-hmm. can bro- we can broaden it to that degree but when it comes to the sort of things that we do, which is talk about religion in the public sphere, um, I started to believe and started to use this, this phrase in around March of last year, which is trying to talk about the end of this white evangelical hegemony um, that they've sort of imposed on the media mm-hmm. um, and have very successfully done politically as well as being sort of the default type of American Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we're starting to see that. Um, but I'm curious, yeah. like what, what, what after, especially after this last year, um, and on this anniversary of uh, January sixth, um, what is your impression as far as the, the way in which we as a society are able to talk about religion in general and of christianity in america in particular
1: well clearly you look not just at demographics but also at public opinion on things like uh universal health care um medicare for all you know, on racial justice and uh, rights for sexual and gender minorities, and all these sorts of things. And if you just look at that, absolutely, um, you know, white Christian cultural hegemony is in decline. So this is a real thing that you know white conservative Christians have noticed and uh, are panicking about and responding very badly to. But they are responding uh, to something. Um, you know, the, most of the countries over them. So they're clearly losing their hegemony in in, in that sense. Most of the country doesn't defer to them, doesn't respect them. But unfortunately, they still uh, are able to wield very disproportionate power politically Mm -hmm. uh, because of things like the electoral college, the continuing effects of gerrymandering, though that's been overturned in a couple of places. You know, voter suppression, of which we've just seen a brand new wave that nothing is going to be done about before the 2022 and um, 2024 elections. Uh, that's going to be disastrous, and we're letting them get away with disenfranchising uh, mostly black voters and um, some other minority voters. You know, um, particularly in southern states. So all of these things. Um, and just the fundamental structure of the Senate as equal representation. So there's a lot of states with very little population that have a lot of pull, right? Doesn't Wyoming have like more antelope than people in it but it still has two senators?
0: Yeah, I think they have around 800,000 people in the entire state, um, which even smaller metropolitan areas can, uh, can challenge that population size.
1: Uh, so, you know, I think we're starting to see um, many people, well, I don't say we, who's, who's we? Um, I think maybe, maybe for the first time, a lot of white people have, have noticed just how fundamentally unfair our political structures are. And they were designed that way, right? To, to protect power for, uh, you know, white wealthy male landowners. The constitution was indeed a, a document for and by uh, slave owners. Um, sure, some of the Founding Fathers wanted to abolish slavery, but at the end of the day, they compromised. And hey, hey, I like Hamilton as much as anybody else. It's a pretty great musical. But, um, you know, <laughs> um, the whole romantic notion that we have of the Founding Fathers is pretty problematic. I, I think Hamilton actually does help destabilize that. I mean, it's much better than 1776, but okay, that's a distraction. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I go down, you know, I go down rabbit trails. Um, and I just kind of lost my train of oh, thought. No, yeah, yeah. So,
0: I, so you were you were talking a bit about um... right the
1: disproportionate power that white conservative Christians still hold. It is structurally built into certain things that just desperately need reform. We need to make DC a state. We need to abolish the Electoral College, and you know we, we need national voting protections. None of which is forthcoming anytime soon. But then there's the other thing with respect to white Christian cultural hegemony is that you know the media still protects it, still just absolutely mishandles how they deal with um, toxic authoritarian Christianity. Even after all the Trump years, after a year of Biden being obstructed, um, a year out from, from the January 6th insurrection, it is deeply disappointing to me uh, how just unquestioned, uh, unrecognized Christian hegemony Christian supremacism pervades the elite media discourse, the, the punditocracy, uh, the legacy media, the elite public sphere. And I know that you and I have been working for to, to help ex-evangelicals get more media representation. We've made some gains in mm-hmm. recent years, but um, it's it's not a lot compared to just the overwhelming way in which in the press, uh, religious values are still taken to be inherently good things. And by that, they mean, you know, some kind of like um, some sort of mishmash of Christianity, like vague Christianity, right? We say religion right. in the media, a lot of times what they really mean is Christianity. Religion is too big of a category to be meaningful and should not be used that way. But, but provident pundits do it all the time. Jennifer Rubin very recently, you know, said, well, religious values are kindness and empathy and um you know all these sorts of things so this hatred toward immigrants from the trump people is unreligious well no it's not (laughs) i mean that's not how anything works religious values is a contextual category their religious values include uh cultural dominance over everybody else that's a value it's a religious value it's a christian value Mm
0: -hmm. you're right and it's and to further elaborate on that, one example is the it's literally in the name Dominion theology, the Seven Mountains, what, whatever sort of um, whatever sort of version of Dominionist theology you want to have, uh, and its presence in very influential things like Christian Reconstruction, um, who our our uh, mutual friend Julie Ingersoll is an expert in. Um, these things are are apparent, but they really can sometimes only feel apparent if you have a passing familiarity with them. And I, I do know that, uh, and I think what, what you're hinting, what you are talking about in regards to there being this general sort of respect for religiosity, um, it it really defaults to what used to be called Judeo-Christian values. Right. Um, I think,
1: and sometimes also still is in the press,
0: right? Though, though, um, there are there are jewish scholars and jewish individuals and jewish writers who have um very uh, effectively pushed back against that
1: um, yeah of course it should it shouldn't be used but um you know mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that the press isn't doing it uh, I, I believe the term was coined back in the 19th century, but, you know, in my mind, it's more of a Cold War term, Mm -hmm. where um, they were actually making an effort, the people who were using it at the time, to be more inclusive, but in so doing, they subsumed Judaism to Christianity, essentially, and and they kind of reinforced Christian notions of Mm supersessionism, even though, you know, this was the more liberal version of sort of uh, 50s and 60s uh, civil religion. It was the (sighs) Um, sorry about the doors and the the dog. The dog has just gotten back from a walk. My, my roommate
0: has brought the dog back. That's totally uh, fine. We <laughs> uh, we embrace we embrace pet sounds. Um, <laughs> not it's not just a good Beach Boys album. It's <laughs> background noise on podcasts. It's okay.
1: Yeah, this is you know pandemic life, right? So that's right.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: anyway. Yeah. Uh, I lost my train of thought again because uh, it's a dog. Yeah, no, um, you, were,
0: you were talking about the, the, the phrase Judeo-Christian and how it, right. it, it was supposed to be an inclusive term, but sure. over, and, over time- but, um, but it was
1: also part of this Cold War initiative uh, you know, of um, civil society leaders, business leaders, government leaders getting together and trying to promote uh, religion because they thought that we needed religious values to be able to oppose Godless communism. Right, so we still very much in the analysis of someone like Jennifer Rubin, we're we're still seeing basically this this Cold War way of, of thinking, and we're seeing a huge panic among in the press about secularization, right? And one of the things that is very that's very frustrating to me is they never seem to want to talk to any of the secularized secularizing. I mean, they don't talk right. to former adherents of. Christian faiths, right? To, to say, you know, how do you feel about secularization? You're one of these nuns we've been hearing about, N-O-N-E-S. You're, you're one of these religiously unaffiliated. Maybe uh, instead of talking to another pastor who will talk about how sad and scary secularization is because in the secular future, no one will do humanitarian things, which just as an aside is complete bullshit. bullshit. Uh, you know, maybe we'll also talk to you, Mr. or Ms. secularized person, and uh we'll just get your opinion but they don't they don't they don't care that's continuing christian cultural hegemony you know Mm -hmm.
0: yeah yeah and i i I mean it's it's certainly not a uh it's it's not a uh cut and dry sort of thing to to try to challenge something that has been present in society for centuries (laughs) um Mm -hmm. but uh i mean to your point i do think that some of the things that, that have been happening over the last several years, um, whether it's uh, whether it's through social media and the rise of, of of communities, sort of forming ad hoc communities online, even not, and not just things like uh, Exvangelical, which we have both contributed to, or empty the pews, um, which which you use to highlight those stories of people who have left and identify as having left specifically um there's also things like ex-mormon uh, ex-muslim like these these sorts of uh these sorts of pushes are um are valuable and i think they that even though um even though it's not as sort of reaching the same level of representation in legacy media or the media that um that has a lot of Weight, uh, cultural weight behind it, or even the capacity to say, uh, you know, adequately, adequately pay people to create that content. Um, um and I'm still encouraged, <laughs> mm-hmm. None, you know, nonetheless. Um, oh, no, even even
1: I, you know, consummate pessimist, am um, somewhat encouraged that we have made progress. The conversations are happening. Sometimes they get some press coverage, and eventually mm-hmm. they're going to have to, uh, you know be more well known and more heard you know mm, cuz the yeah. the um you know the uh, the dams are breaking i yeah. guess
0: and i to that degree i i do sort of see um we're we're starting to see at least you know, uh, these things play out even within evangelicalism um you know with with the ways in which some uh, more strident white evangelical leaders are trying to push back against breakthrough books like, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, Mm -hmm. um, and trying to discredit those, those writers and those perspectives, same thing with, um, Beth Allison Barr's book, um, which is, which is directed towards a Christian audience, um, and questions, Mm -hmm. uh, some of the, some of the, you know, sacred cows, um, just use that, Uh, Yeah, that turn of phrase. um, I have to say, I just have
1: a lot of respect for uh, both Kristen cobus Dume and Beth Allison Barr. um, Mm -hmm. And her her book was um, uh, the making of biblical womanhood, Mm -hmm. you know, um, looking at that historically, but also, you know, taking some um, taking on the theology to, to some extent of, um, you know, biblical patriarchy or male headship, complementarianism, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, What I want to say is less about the book and more just about how I just appreciate her so much for actually listening to me and people like me. You know, she doesn't feel, doesn't seem to feel particularly threatened by the fact that I just decided I just want nothing to do with any of this. Like, I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to be religious she's so right. nice to me that actually that that means something <laughs> yeah
0: yeah definitely um absolutely and I, I like i i think there's value in those conversations happening in multiple places from multiple multiple perspectives like that that conversation needs to happen within the church i think um i i think that this sort of show represents the people that have had those conversations before and had to leave for whatever those reasons were. Yeah. Um, And I mean, honestly,
1: I still don't think that the church like evangelical churches are ever going to really reform. I just don't believe they're reformable.
0: No. And I don't think they want to, I don't, I mean, yeah. not
1: Not those who are still in charge of them. They sure don't want to.
0: Oh, not at all. They've had so many chances. They've given themselves so many mulligans yeah. You know, uh to quote Ralph Reed. So um mm.
1: so yeah, I mean the fruits of these these books within you know the, the, the Christian groups that they're maybe to some extent targeted at, I would argue that Jesus and John Wayne was written for a much wider audience in theory. Um, mm-hmm. but these are books written by evangelical scholars, um, you know, liberal to progressive evangelical scholars, and yeah. um certainly read by other evangelical audiences the fruits of that is going to be just more people leaving because once again, the churches won't change the evangelical institutions, evangelical colleges, they won't change, you know, the national association of evangelicals won't change the, uh, the CCCU won't change. They don't change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, they're. (laughs) I think you had a piece several, um, you know, several, uh, Years ago about where do ex-evangelicals come from. And it's like this is where they come from. They come from from these types of conflicts. Like they they try to change, they push out reformers. Um uh, they that's what they've done for for decades. It's not that the, the church doesn't need reform, it doesn't want reform. Uh, And then
1: the ones who think they're all fancy celebrate Reformation Day and drink their favorite beers and think they're all cool and whatnot. But, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They can't reform anything. They can't reform their way out of a paper box. (laughs) Paper bag, cardboard box, whatever. Whatever. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, to to sort of uh, wrap things up, I do want to pick your brain about where you think the next year will sort of lead us. where um, I'm gonna publish this. We're talking on January 5th um, Come hell or high water this is going to be published on the sixth with minimal editing um, But uh, with that in mind, what what are your thoughts as far as where um, where these conversations are going, what we might, um, reasonably expect from 2022, mm-hmm. and like I, uh, I, you know, I, I dragged myself um on Instagram earlier this just on January 1st. I don't make resolutions or predictions anymore because mm-hmm. I thought I was really clever on January 2020, uh, and like was like citing um a quote from like. Uh, the Watchmen hbo limited series and it was like you can't heal with a mask on and so and at the beginning of 2020 i said uh here's to more healing and fewer masks and um that mm. really uh shot me in the foot <laughs> um so i i mean yeah as uh as grandiose or as uh specific or small as as you want what it like uh, what are you going to be looking out for? What What are your thoughts um, for the the political and religious landscape here in the in the U.S. Um, um, next next year, next couple of years?
1: Well, I don't want to say that the House and Senate are definitely lost to Democrats, but I think they very likely will be at least one of those chambers. And you know, honestly, Democrats and, and President Biden have been able to do so little thanks to uh, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin anyway, supposedly Democratic senators who won't allow any necessary reforms. Um, so, you know, the country's gonna basically stay broken. Um, the, the MAGA people and the quote, stop the steal people, you know, the Trump true believers, uh, they're going to continue to push the, the big lie that the 2020 election was supposedly stolen from them. Um, And and of course, what they're doing with that is simply saying that they don't recognize the legitimacy of Democrats being in power ever at all, right? And Mm -hmm. uh, they're at this point, in many cases, openly talking about civil war or about simply not wanting to um, have democracy at all. But I expect that while American democracy will continue to become even less democratic than it already is. Um, we'll, we'll still have the forms, you know, we'll still have elections. Um, they just won't do much good for anyone. Um, you know, it's very likely in June that Roe v. Wade will actually be outright overturned. I don't think Chief Justice Roberts would be for that. I think he would be for keeping it on paper, but weakening it to the point where it is meaningless and it's almost meaningless already. Um, but the way the Supreme Court has been going, uh, it, you know, the, the other five radical right-wing justices, they don't need Roberts to just um, take Roe off the books. And that's very dangerous. I mean, and, and not even just for abortion and the you know um, millions of, of women and people who can get pregnant that that will put uh, at, at risk, and at risk of an, a number of things. I mean, of course, uh, there's, there's a lot of negative consequences of having to carry unplanned pregnancies to term, and there can be huge health consequences. But also, you know, and, and this is, again, where I think the legacy media is being extremely irresponsible. Uh, you know, the Washington Post has published some sort of uh, glowing, very uh, fluffy pieces about how, you know, women in Texas now where there's no abortions are founding, evangelical Christian women, of course, are founding these homes for, um, you know, young unwed mothers. Yeah, we've seen that picture before. It always leads to massive abuse, physical, uh, sometimes sexual, certainly uh, including the coercive Uh, removal of of children from mothers forced to sign papers under duress when they don't know what they're doing for adoption by the quote, right kind of, you know, good Christian quote family. Um, So there's all kinds of abuses that are gonna come out of the institutions being founded to deal with uh, what evangelicals have long since called crisis pregnancies uh, with their crisis, fake crisis pregnancy centers that are used to uh, lure people away from seeking you know, comprehensive family planning and women's health care. So that's bad, all that's very bad, but it gets worse. (laughs) Because (laughs) because you take take Roe away and then you have no constitutional basis. You have no basis in constitutional law for any recognition of a right to privacy. So that opens up a huge can of worms, right? Um, and we can see um, all kinds of things go backwards if there's no right to privacy, including contraception and same-sex marriage, uh, arguably, and you know, perhaps even the return of state level, quote, sodomy laws, you know? Mm-hmm. If there's no right to privacy, then on what basis does the, the um, overturning of um, Texas sodomy laws stand?
0: yeah it's not the prettiest uh outlook <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it is a um it is, I mean, a, is gonna be a huge
1: a huge like yeah. fading effect i mean lawrence is an obvious example but uh lawrence v texas but i think there are so many others it's it's gonna get bad
0: right yeah and it's important to note uh, even even at the tail of this conversation is that this is the the long stated goal of a, a lot of uh, evangelical legal institutions that are very moneyed, um, that are well healed, and very deeply connected to a lot of state and federal uh, federal machinery. Um, yep. And they so, want to
1: return us to a world where you know they have the paternalistic control of everything and the, the ability to decide who is deserving of healthcare and the ability to act hypocritically when they have the power and wealth to do so. So, you know, Mm. your little sister gets pregnant. Okay, you send her off somewhere where you have the money to do so for her to get an abortion, you never speak of it again. I mean, there are evangelical families, quite a few where, where that would happen, but, you know, it should be against the law for everyone else and for everyone in general, you know, you'll just make excuses for yourself sometimes yeah (laughs) you know paternalism comes with all of that uh nepotism and and hypocrisy and uh you know just domination of powerful mostly white men white christian men
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and that's why these things are so important to speak out about and to even if it can feel overwhelming and it's not something that um, you may feel that, that you have any direct influence over, um, it's important to stay informed and, and see, you know, mm-hmm. what yeah, you my might prediction is do. every,
1: you know, everything is terrible and it's just going to get more terrible. <laughs> 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 I've been very right with that prediction for, you know, the last few years. So yeah. It's, I why mean, stop yeah. now?
0: <laughs> honestly, it's, it is, um, uh, yeah hope is a choice at this point you you know hope is definitely i think in 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 some ways always has been you know it's it's been a been a choice and i hope that and there are i feel
1: you in my head charles what are you what are you looking for in there (laughs) you know there's and
0: to to clue the listener in on there we um we have a a long-running joke that that uh that chrissy is uh magneto and i'm professor x and in our relationship and the the sort of uh the different poles that we represent <laughs> to use a... <laughs> so so yeah I, I i try to be i try to be that uh if not optimistic at least um at least leaning into the potentiality of optimism <laughs> and you know no, what, actually and, I... and you know you uh, if you, Chrissy, on on the note of just nerdy X-Men talk for one second, there over the last couple of years, there's been this incredible uh, renaissance of uh, X-Men comics. Um, and basically within, uh, within the sort of new status quo of the X-Men books, all of the mutants live. There's a mutant nation, um, and like Magneto and uh, Professor X essentially co-founded the nation with some other, Um, some other groups and you know they but they they work together basically to protect the interests of of mutants (laughs) so it's a nice it's a nice it's a nice idea yeah yeah it's it's a it's a very it's a very uh good metaphor (laughs) (laughs) still works it's still it's amazing how that still feels feels relevant even after although i I do
1: i do love how deadpool always makes fun of it though
0: (laughs) oh yeah yeah definitely
1: you know breaking the fourth wall and calling x-men an outdated metaphor for racism and
0: (laughs) yeah yeah
1: yeah. always talking about how much he hates wolverine it's hilarious
0: but yeah anyway Uh, yeah i mean i mean marvel is publishing uh x-men books where um where Wolverine, Cyclops, and Jean Grey are in a triad. So, I mean, <laughs> things are different over there now than they used to be. <laughs> that's anyway. That's it my own. We're comic. <laughs> yeah, that that's my own. Uh, you know, rabbit hole there is is comic books. Um, anyways, thank you so much, Chrissy, for uh for joining me and sort of talking about um where where things have gone over the last year, where they may be going. Uh, It's always a pleasure talking to you. Where can people find your work online and support your work?
1: Thanks for having me, Blake. Uh, As you mentioned at the beginning of the show, I uh, write primarily for religion dispatches and open democracy these days. Sometimes I also write for The Conversationalist, Dame Magazine, and other outlets. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, at C underscore Stroop that's S-T-R-O-O-P and if you're interested in the stories of people who have deconstructed conservative Christianity check out my co-edited anthology with Lauren O'Neill Empty the Pews stories of leaving the church should be able to order that wherever you order books so you know Lauren and I certainly encourage the use of independent bookstores or if you're you know anti-Amazon you don't have to get it there
0: yeah yeah Absolutely. And it's a great, um, it's a great, great collection of essays. You can also find um, my interview with Chrissy and Lauren in the archive of the show. So just scroll <laughs> that back That was a, a fun bit. one. Yeah. Just I hope you up. had as
1: much fun as I did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was definitely fun. So um, as always, you can follow me on Twitter at BR Chastain, and you can support my work at the Post Evangelical Post, which is hosted on Substack. I've sort of hacked Substack so you can uh, support it at $4, $6, or $8 a month. Um, You can follow those links at postevangelicalpost.com. Thank you very much for listening.